A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 184, Act 2, begins. Last time we were all together, Michael IV had put down a Bulgarian uprising and failed in his attempt to capture Sicily, imprisoning his most fearsome general, George Maniakis, in the process. For those of you who haven't got round to buying episode 183 yet, you missed the death of Michael IV from natural causes, the swift fall of his nephew Michael V, and the return of Maniakis to Italy. The younger Michael had tried to remove Zoe from the picture, and the people of Constantinople did not stand for it. They besieged the palace, overthrew the Paphlagonian regime, and not only reinstalled Zoe, but insisted that her sister Theodora rule with her. This brought to an end what I'm calling Act One of our century of narrative. What we've dealt with so far are largely problems left over from Basil II's reign. The expanded and uncertain borders, and the absence of a capable successor. Act two sees the empire's problems deepen and widen. Today we will meet Constantine the Ninth, who will rule for the next thirteen years, seemingly providing us with a bit of stability at the top. But the rise of our sixth new regime in seventeen years will actually encourage more instability. More coups and civil wars are on the way. Meanwhile, the empire will encounter new enemies. Normans, Pechenegs, and Turks, who didn't play by established rules. As I said, though, the fall of the Paphlagonians had left two women in charge of the empire with no male counterpart. A unique situation in the history of the Roman world. This unprecedented state of affairs lasted for about three months before Zoe would marry again, both women agreeing that a man was needed to handle the business of government. It sort of feels like a missed opportunity, a chance for two women to make positive changes to Roman life. But, according to Psellos, neither woman had any inclination towards administration. 
Both had been kept away from power throughout their youth, and this doesn't seem to have stoked a burning desire to rule, although obviously they wanted to maintain their position and privileges. It's also worth remembering what happened to the Empress Irene when she blinded her son, Constantine VI. Once it was clear that she planned to rule alone, with no male heir, coalitions quickly formed, aiming to be the first to overthrow her. Perhaps the Macedonian sisters were wiser than we think, and realised that a male frontman was needed to shield them from further trouble. After yet another generous round of handouts for the city's notables, the sisters did make a couple of policy decisions. One was to reappoint their father's eunuchs to positions of power, and the other was to ban the practice of selling offices. Presumably, this was intended to end the reign of unpopular tax farmers who had caused local rebellions to break out across the empire, which has been a constant theme this century. Zoe then announced that she intended to marry again, and began to interview prospective candidates for the job. She did not look for young money changers this time, though Psellos makes clear that the only men she considered were notably handsome. First among equals was, of course, Constantine Thalassinos, the man her father had originally chosen to be his successor. As you know, Thalassinos had been overlooked and then imprisoned, so strong a candidate was he. Understandably, then, when he met with Zoe, he spoke with authority and some condescension about imperial affairs. It was obvious to him that had he been appointed 14 years earlier, the empire would be in a much better state than it was now. He had a point, but his haughty attitude was a turn-off, and we can perhaps forgive Zoe for overlooking him. The last three emperors had, in turn, ignored, imprisoned, and exiled her. She wasn't going to choose a man who seemed a threat. Next, she turned to a respected imperial secretary, who some believe she'd already had an affair with, but he died suddenly from an illness, leaving Zoe at square one again. Finally, then, she turned to Constantine Monomachos another man from a family of civil officials who had been in exile during the Paphlagonian era. Zoe knew and liked him, and recalled him to the city, where he was greeted by cheering crowds. The two were married on June the 11th, 1042, and Monomachos was crowned Constantine the Ninth the next day. This was the third marriage for both partners, forbidden under canon law, but again the patriarch Alexius was forced to look the other way, literally on this occasion as he did not perform the ceremony himself to avoid embarrassment. Constantine Monomachos was the son of Theodosius Monomachos, who had served the Macedonian dynasty in the palace for years. At some point during Basil II's reign, he was implicated in a conspiracy, and his son's fortunes had suffered as a result. Constantine was then identified as a potential threat by the Paphlagonians, who exiled him to the island of Lesbos, where he'd been living for the past seven years. 
Constantine had been married twice already, and the identity of his wives casts some light on why his family had been viewed with such suspicion. The first was one of Bardas Sclerosis' daughters, a connection unlikely to amuse Basil II, while his second was the niece of Romanus Ahiros, a choice which meant the Paphlagonians would be naturally antagonistic. Now aged about 40, Monomachos was unexpectedly elevated to the very top. So, what was our new emperor like? This is where things become tricky. We are very fortunate that it was Monomachos who promoted a young Michael Pselos to high office in his administration. The two men became close, and so, as with Procopius and Belisarius, we are in that rare position of having a first-hand account of history from someone at the coalface. Unfortunately, towards the end of Monomachos's reign, Pselos felt he could no longer trust his patron to protect him, and abandoned the palace for the safety of a monastery, something Pselos really did not want to do. If this wasn't enough to sour Pselos on our new emperor, then subsequent events certainly did. Pselos is writing his history as the Turks overrun Anatolia. Looking back to find the origins of the empire's decline, he located them here in the reign of Constantine the Ninth. These twin disappointments colour Pselos's perspective, and he presents our new Vasilevs as the anti-Basil II, a man unsuited to the office of emperor, and whose blunders led the Romans down the path towards disaster. Much of what Pselos tells us must be true, as his readership would include many who had also known the emperor, but his portrayal is tainted, and modern historians, Antony Cordellus amongst them, believe that Constantine IX was a far better emperor than Pselos gives him credit for. The picture we get of Monomachos is of a charming and easygoing man. Pselos says his social skills included the ability to adapt quickly to the needs of those he was conversing with, making him an ideal choice for Zoe and Theodora. He ingratiated himself with them quickly and protected their positions and access to the treasury. To give you an idea of how good their relationship was, Monomachos was able to move his mistress into the palace where she was treated like a third empress. You would think that such an idea would be complete anathema to Zoe and Theodora, but on the contrary, they seem to have not only accepted the new arrival, but got on well with her. Only if they perceived Monomachos to be no threat at all would they have allowed this to happen. This woman, by the way, was the niece of Constantine's first wife, Maria of the Sclerose clan. This unusual ménage à trois seems to have come to pass about two years into the new emperor's reign. When Maria appeared in public with the imperial entourage, the crowds nearly assaulted Monomachos, 
They had chased off one ruler who'd tried to cut Zoe out of public life, and they perceived the new Augusta to be her replacement. Both Macedonian sisters had to come out to calm the crowds down and assure them that all was well. Whether this means that the marriage between the 40-year-old Constantine and the 60-year-old Zoe was entirely platonic, we don't know. But clearly, Zoe did not expect her new partner to be faithful, nor did she feel jealous about that. Psellos makes clear that Constantine, the people-pleaser, was a thoroughly pleasant and likeable person. His habits were modest, and he did not have a big ego. Just the sort of character you would want as a Roman citizen, but not as Roman emperor. Having been in exile for seven years, Pselos thinks Monomachos came to the palace seeking the pleasure and peace of mind he'd been denied for so long. But of course, that's not what the office of emperor involved. Being Vasilevs meant constant stress and alertness. Constantine had just the wrong temperament for this role, so we're told. He also had the wrong priorities. Instead of marching around subjugating friend and foe alike, as Basil II had done, Monomachos wanted to stay at home and pursue his pleasures. He was happy to buy both popularity and peace. Is this a fair characterization? We'll have to find out together. We need to judge his actions against the complexity of the challenges that he's going to face, because believe me, it's going to be tough going for him and the Empire. Back to geopolitics then. As you'll recall, Norman mercenaries hired for the invasion of Sicily had rowed with their general, Maniakis, and left that expedition sailing back for Italy. There they had begun to destabilise the political situation in Byzantine territory. As we discussed in episode 162, the Normans were adept at a form of heavy cavalry fighting similar to the cataphracts deployed by Nicephorus Phocus. They were also ruthless opportunists who had come to Italy because of its fractured political situation. As you know, a weak German control in the north was matched by weak Byzantine rule in the south. In the middle were small Lombard states perennially fighting with one another and Byzantium. In addition, there were a series of rich city-states, Naples, Rome, Amalfi, who had money but no armies. It was the perfect environment for men who had grown up in the ultra-competitive and ultra-violent kingdom of Normandy. Across the next half-century, a series of Norman adventurers will sell their services to the highest bidder, betray those they were serving, and leverage ever better positions from which to eventually seize whole states for themselves. Antony Caldellis pulls no punches, calling the Normans terrorists. On several occasions, this seems an accurate statement, as they would deliberately inflict terror on civilian populations in order to be paid protection money and assume control of local strongholds. 
The leading Normans who'd fought alongside Maniarches and Harold Hardrada were the sons of Tancred of Hauteville, Guillaume and Drogon. When they returned to Bari in 1040, the local Byzantine commander put them in charge of the town of Melfi, which lay on the border with Lombard territory. Soon afterwards, they invited the Lombards in, presumably they were bribed, and then twice defeated Byzantine forces in action. These were small battles between a few hundred or at most a couple of thousand men, and in such small confrontations the heavy cavalry charges of experienced knights did serious damage. These destabilizing defeats saw Bari, the Byzantine capital, infiltrated and captured by the Lombards. This sort of skirmish had been going on for a century now, so Constantinople had no reason to be unduly alarmed. The people of Bari chose a new leader in Ahiros, the son of Milo, who had been the leading Lombard rebel during Basil II's reign. Ahiros was an acceptable face for all. A true Lombard by blood, he'd grown up in Constantinople as a hostage, and so could communicate well with the local Greek speakers. His first order of business was to face up to the incoming Byzantine reinforcements, led, of course, by the returning George Maniakis. Maniakis did not feel he had sufficient forces to besiege a well-fortified city, and so spent his time in the south, trying to whip the people into shape, dishing out harsh punishments to those suspected of collaborating with the empire's enemies. A couple of months later, and word came from the Bosphorus that Monomachos was now in charge and was happy to purchase peace from the Lombards. He offered to put Ahiros on the payroll if he would restore Roman order. Ahiros was happy to do so, allowing imperial officials to land safely at Bari and reinstate tax collection. This has led some to suspect that Ahiros, like Eleusian, was a Byzantine double agent all along, but that is not the case. This brought peace to Italy once more, but we know better. The Normans were not interested in peace, and would soon stir up trouble again. Serious trouble. Peace and the promotion of Ahiros left Maniakis in a difficult position. Having spent the past four years in prison, he was determined never to be locked up again. But now imperial officials arrived with his replacement and orders to bring him home. It's not clear if he was being reassigned or reincarcerated. He was certainly a potential threat to the peace-loving, legitimacy-lacking new emperor. Either way, Maniakis was done taking chances. He killed the officials sent to collect him and declared himself emperor. He spent the rest of 1042 marching around Italy, collecting troops for his rebellion. Bari was closed to him, and so he made a winter crossing of the Adriatic. The plan was simple. March straight for Constantinople, and take the throne. Maniarchis landed at Dyrrhachium in February 1043. His arrival was well-timed, 
coming on the heels of the Roman defeat in the Death Isles of Ducia that I talked about in episode 182. Resistance was therefore limited, and the hulking general was able to recruit a few more soldiers and begin the long march across the Balkans. We know he encountered one imperial force as he rushed through Bulgaria, and that he defeated it, but we don't have any further details. Needing a solid halfway house, Maniakis was making first for Thessalonica. When the news of his crossing had reached the palace, Monomachos had ordered the European Tagmata to intercept him. Fearful that his soldiers would be tempted to join the fearsome general's side, he'd appointed a eunuch named Stephen to lead the army. The two sides met about 70 miles east of Thessalonica in March. Maniakis, as usual, fought in the front line, leading a cavalry charge that broke through Stephen's formation. But in the thick of the fighting, George took a nasty blow to his side and fell dead from his horse. When the news became widespread, Maniakis' army dispersed or surrendered. They had no reason to fight on. Stephen's men sent the general's head on to Constantinople, where it was displayed in the Hippodrome. Monomachos was extremely relieved. He was well aware that, like his three predecessors, he had no military credentials and little legitimacy. If Maniakis had made it to the land walls, there was a real chance that someone would have opened the gates. Instead, it was Stephen who rode through them in a lavish imperial triumph. It was on this occasion that Pselos endeared himself to the emperor, writing orations in Monomachos's honour, a custom that had lapsed centuries earlier. Pselos's pen would broadcast appealing propaganda for the emperor throughout his reign. The loss of Maniakis was a sad one, as he was a real soldier's soldier. But, as Antony Caldellis says, he had just as great a talent for making enemies as defeating them, so it's probably for the best that he didn't become emperor. His revolt, though, was a serious matter. It dragged more troops away from Italy and opened the doors for the return of civil war, something which Basil II had spent a lifetime trying to shut the doors on. Imperial authority was at a very low ebb. To those living outside of the capital, Monomachos seemed like yet another cipher in a parade that had begun with Basil's death. Again, tax collectors were murdered, this time on Cyprus, where the governor rebelled and the fleet had to be sent in to restore order. Meanwhile, a plot was discovered brewing in the capital, which centred on the eunuch Stephen, who had just enjoyed his triumph. He was tonsured and sent into exile, while his co-conspirators were treated more harshly. Worse still, news now arrived that a Rus fleet was heading for the Bosphorus. A big one. Monomachos sent envoys to offer peace terms, but the ludicrous sum that was demanded for the Rus to turn around and go home was a thousand gold coins per ship. Allegedly, their fleet contained up to 400 vessels, 
although most were relatively small ships. The Rus sailed on across the Black Sea, arriving at the mouth of the Bosphorus in July. Why were the Rus attacking again? As you know, they'd launched similar amphibious assaults on the Roman capital back in 860, 907, and 941. On a couple of occasions, they had done significant damage and carried off lots of suburban loot, but they had never really threatened to capture the city and had always suffered terrible losses. Yet, it was a tradition which each generation seemed determined to experience for themselves. In a sense, this was just medieval diplomacy. The Rus state desperately needed access to the markets of Constantinople, and they knew that favourable terms were always offered after a show of strength. But I think it also speaks to the insecurity of Kiev's control over its own people. A great expedition like this could only work if all those involved subordinated themselves to the Tsar. We can assume that like most states in the north and west of Byzantium, Rus rulers struggled to keep control over their elites. The romance and potential of a campaign against Constantinople was one of the carrots that could be dangled to keep everyone in line. The timing of this particular attack may also have been influenced by news of Michael V's fall and of Maniarches's revolt. The sheer size of the invading armada had meant that the Romans knew that they were coming in good time. Monomachos had scrambled quickly to shore up the home fleet. He would have called on reinforcements from the Mediterranean, but ships had been diverted to deal with the problems in Cyprus. The emperor was therefore sweating a little as he gathered the remainder of his forces and lined them up to face down the Rus. Monomachos and Pselos watched from a nearby hill as the Byzantine fleet blocked the entrance to the Bosphorus. As the two sides engaged, the Romans incinerated the front line of Rus ships with Greek fire. This caused a good deal of panic, and the battle that followed was pretty chaotic. Rus ships retreated in every direction. Some ran aground in the shallow waters of the coast. There they were met by the Byzantine army, which had been arrayed on the beach to repel any landing. There was great slaughter, with corpses washing up for weeks to come. Other Rus managed to land safely and headed home. Some made it all the way north to the Hemus Mountains before being attacked by the Roman garrisons there. The bulk of the Rus fleet simply reversed north across the Black Sea and in the end surrounded and sank 24 imperial ships which had attempted to pursue them. In all, it was an extremely bloody day. The man who'd sent the expedition, Yaroslav the Wise, was the last ruler of a united Rus kingdom. As we explored in episode 163, power would now be divided between different parts of the realm, and never again would they stand united to present a threat to Byzantium.
At the time, though, Monomachos was once again very relieved to have survived such a fearsome sight, and he immediately made entreaties to secure the peace. A few years later, it seems a kinswoman of the emperor's was sent to marry Yaroslav's son. It's been a breathless start to the reign of Constantine the Ninth, and although he'd rather be at peace in the palace, he will find no rest. Next time, another military rebellion will begin, more conflict will break out in Armenia, and the Pechenegs will once again cross the Danube. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 